You're listening to At Large, a global affairs podcast brought to you by China U.S. Focus. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, James Chow. This is episode 27 from Hong Kong. George H. W. Bush has died. What was so poignant about the timing is that it came just seven months after the passing of his wife Barbara, who, in public and in private, was his partner in every sense. He served for only one term as U.S. president, but for two terms before that as Ronald Reagan's vice president. That I will faithfully execute. When it came time for him to lead on his own, Bush navigated the American people through extraordinary times. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union and communism in Eastern Europe, the creation of a North American free trade agreement, the invasion of Kuwait and the subsequent Gulf War, and a civil conflict in Somalia that continues to this day. Uniquely, he was the son of a senator, the father of a president. And the father of another son who ran for president, with Jimmy Carter, George H. W. Bush was also elder statesman of that exclusive club of living former presidents: Bill Clinton, his namesake George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and one day Donald Trump, amongst them. With Clinton in particular, whom he lost to in the 1992 election, he later formed the unlikeliest of friendships. Banding together their humanitarian response in the aftermath of the 2004 Asian tsunami and the next year after Hurricane Katrina, their unity was striking given the context of the divided political climate even today. But maybe, just maybe, that was Bush's style. Of the United States, harmony and peace in here. At his first White House、Bruce. press conference, a week after becoming president, he had this to say about what he wanted、like、to、gold. achieve for the U.S. and in the world. I really am serious about this, trying to、uh, get more of a bipartisan foreign policy, for example. And though we haven't addressed that specifically in terms of issues, I have addressed it in broad terms to the members of Congress with whom I've met here. And with whom I met over in the residence, and so、uh, I'd like to signal、uh, an era of real openness with Congress. Look, I know we're going to have conflicts, Britain. I know we're going to run up against each other, but I want to start with that approach. Really、From Nixon onwards, every American and Chinese leader has had, to some degree, a special relationship, if only because Washington and Beijing and how they interact always has significant bearing on the entire world. But even so, Bush came to Beijing at an especially critical time in the last years of the Cultural Revolution. As chief of the U.S. liaison office to China, not as ambassador, because there was not a diplomatic relationship then. When Bush first arrived, China's future president Xi Jinping was a farmer in Liangjiahe, a village accessible only on foot. Six years into a forced exile, how times have changed. Last week, when Bush died, Xi Jinping was at the G20 as China's leader, sitting across the table from Donald Trump. When he gave this tribute to Bush, this is the voice of an interpreter. I'm greatly saddened by the passing of the late President Bush, who is someone who made an important contribution to China-U.S. friendship and relationships during his lifetime. 
By the time Bush arrived in Beijing, he had already served as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and as chairman of the Republican National Committee. So when he came, he had great weight attached to him and even greater expectations. Bush was only in China for 14 months, but so deep was the impression it had on him that he later wrote a book entirely about this period of his life. I didn't know there was such a book until a few days ago when I saw tweets written by a friend of mine. Jorge Guajardo was Mexico's ambassador to Beijing in the 2000s, and he wrote on Twitter that he bought dozens of copies of Bush's China Diary to give to each new arriving ambassador. I'm ordering my copy on Amazon. As it happens, exactly one year ago, on the way back in the car from Plains, where Jimmy Carter lives, I was reading *Sisters First*, a collection of stories by Jenna Bush Hager and Barbara Pierce Bush, daughters of W and granddaughters of H W. The book is great. It's a touching account of family life in the Bush family, and in particular the impact that Bush Senior had on them growing up. There are plenty of tributes from global leaders, and there'll be more in the coming days. But read that book. It's funny, emotional, gentle, revealing, and honest. And while it's not centered only on President Bush, it will tell you a whole lot about him as a person and not just as a statesman. This is At Large, your weekly podcast on China, the U.S., and the world. Keep listening. The big story that came out of the G20 summit in Buenos Aires was not Trump apparently walking off early after he greeted the host president Mauricio Macri in front of the cameras. Maybe they were supposed to take one or two more pictures, but from what I saw, the other visiting leaders, you essentially walk to the center of the stage, shake hands. And then walk off. So maybe the media is making more of it than is said to be. Okay, so it may not have been the most choreographed appearance. And yes, we apparently can hear Trump saying, "Get me out of here!" Caught on somebody's mic. But he knew there was work to do, and he got down to it. Because what I think was the most important development at this G20 was one, the meeting that went ahead between the presidents of China and the U.S., and two. The truth they call for 90 days in the bruising battle to settle trade scores. Right or wrong, I think that's what it's become. You hit me, I hit you back, and I understand why each side think it's doing the right thing. But five months after Trump fired the first shot and Xi Jinping responded, we're now in a position where hundreds of millions of dollars of goods are being subject to tariffs, and at least as much and more could face the same fate. Uh, the relationship is very special. The relationship that I have with President Xi, and、uh, I think that is going to be a very primary reason why we'll probably end up ending up getting something that will be good for China and good for the United States. So we very much appreciate it. No one was even sure that they would have the capacity to sit down together, let alone share their thoughts over a working dinner that symbolically came on the 150th day of the trade dispute. Clearly, they came to the table with the intent to create something out of this opportunity, and in that sense, is proof that the months of backroom talks could be paying off. I don't have an interpreted voiceover of President Xi's response. I'm going to read it to you. This is what he said in parts. He described the meeting as a manifestation of the personal friendship, and he continued. It's been quite a while since our previous meeting, and over the past recent period, a lot of things have taken place in the world. 
China and the United States, two important countries with major influence in the world, showed the important responsibilities for international peace and prosperity. Only with cooperation between us can we serve the interests of world peace and prosperity. And that is why I look forward to this meeting between the two sides, where we could have exchange of ideas or issues of mutual interest, and also especially to jointly map out a future for the China-US relationship. Well, back here, a truce is a truce. It's 90 days without any further punishing tariffs, and it's 90 days to work on a solution. The onus now is on Beijing, says John Sitalides, a Washington strategist and consultant to the US State Department. The numbers will likely go down in terms of the trade deficit between the U.S. and China as China agrees to purchase large amounts of American manufactured and grown products and services. But the degrees to which the Communist Party is able to actually implement the kind of reforms on forced technology transfers, on IP protection issues, cyber intrusion, non-tariff barriers, and general market access to the Chinese economy, which is the U.S. series of positions that it wants progress on, that's going to be the strategic determinant of success. And we really won't know until early, maybe the first half of 2019. It is because, as Citalido says, that this is the most important relationship on planet Earth, that there's so much at stake for these two countries and all of their partners. But we do have a suspension of escalation of retaliatory measures on both sides that I think are largely unwelcome. And so the degree to which we have good news in the context of suspending any further escalation, giving them the parties 90 days to see what they can work out on some very difficult structural market reforms. And frankly, most of that burden will be on China. But there are problems elsewhere. If you've been to any of the major meetings, G7, G20, WTO, climate change, Bilderberg, one of the hallmarks is that there are always, or almost always, large formations of protesters outside the venue or as close as they're allowed to get. It was the same in Argentina last week, and what happened in Paris over the weekend with the anti-fuel tax rioting are all reminders that all is not well with the world. There were many who opposed the participants in Buenos Aires and holding them to account to the degraded state of the world that we find ourselves in. Argentina is in recession. There is inflation of 50% and wages are down because wage negotiations ended in a 15% rise. The G20 comes to ratify this type of policy, but it is not only the G20, but the IMF is here also. And no country that has followed IMF indications have there been improved salaries or improvement in the economy. Also at the G20 was Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, and that brings us on to a last story today. He's headed the World Health Organization for the past 17 months, and he's going to set up a panel to look into gene editing, and specifically into the ethical and social safety issues. The global health chief warns it cannot just be done without clear guidelines, a reference perhaps to He Jianhui, the US-educated scientist now based in China, who altered the DNA of twin babies for HIV resistance. He's been suspended from carrying out any further research while an investigation by his university and by the government gets underway. The Chinese Vice Minister of Science and Technology said the gene editing violated the law 
and that He violated the bottom ethical line. While the panel is not necessarily in direct response to the story in China, Dr. Tedros does say we have to be very, very careful. We should not go into gene editing without understanding the unintended consequences. Well, if you want my full thoughts, listen to last week's episode, episode 26. But I gave a couple of interviews on television in the days since about the mid to long term implications ahead. Here's one of them. Professor Ho, who has painted himself as a, a noble person without whom these girls would now be born with HIV, he's not that at all. Uh, he's thrown the doors open for other scientists to follow his unethical example. And this is not a breakthrough. This is the work of one man who self-funded his own research without any peer review and without the permission of his own university. He's now trying to put a spin on this very unethical episode. And with World AIDS Day coming up in 24 hours' time, his work, ironically, is a reminder that stigma and discrimination for people living with HIV is, unfortunately, very much alive and well. I want to close this episode with how we began. In Texas, the home state of the Bush family, visitors to the George Bush Monument in Houston have shared some of their reflections on his public contribution. I'll leave you with that. Uh, about the passing of uh, President Bush and... Uh, just reaction was generally uh, sad to hear about it and uh, to lose the great president that he was. The main thing that, that we've really reflected on is just how close he was with his wife and uh, being in the same year that they both passed, it's a, it's a beautiful thing that they've, they're together now. It's a sad day for America, but you see people coming together talking about uh, positive things uh, throughout their lives and how they left a good impression on the country. He did the right thing. He got the people behind him and he did the right thing for the right reasons, is what we believe, not only in the Gulf War, but in many of the decisions he made. He put people first, he put the country first, and he put the world above everything else. A great loss.